Hello and welcome to the podcast from Artists for Artists. Let me just tell you today, I have an incredible interview for you. If you are in the art industry, in the dance industry, if you are a woman in the dance industry especially, this interview is especially for you. Today's interview is with professional salsa dancer, teacher, choreographer, and just so much more. You'll hear her story in a moment. Her name is Sharon Fakir. And if you're here for the first time, I welcome you to this podcast. This podcast is about bringing you as an artist from where you are to where you really want to go. You're listening to the voices and stories from artists from all over the world, from all kinds of art industries. Now, whether you're a performer, a painter, a musician, or a creator of any kind, really, you're in the right place because this is the place where you get inspired by artists who are doing things their way. Today, this artist is Sharon Pakir. You'll hear her story in a moment. It is amazing. And I had moments in the interview where I was just speechless because of how honest, direct, and raw Sharon is. She says things as they are, as she's experienced them. But not just that. She gives solid advice about what we can do to become the artists that we really want to become. This is part one of a two-part series. So today is about becoming a successful woman in the art industry, especially so we're talking about the dance industry because that's where Sharon comes from. And, and part two will be more about being a really great teacher because teachers are just as important as the artists themselves. I'm Ula, your host. I'm also a dancer and speaker. And please do let me know if you enjoyed this interview. Here you go. From artists for artists. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to be here today with Sharon Pakir who is a transformational coach, influence expert, as well as a leadership specialist. And today we're actually looking at a whole different aspect of her life because she is also a really great salsa dancer and more than that, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. I've experienced her classes and out of all the online classes I've attended, it's the only one that I really enjoyed. I don't know, because her style is just very special and I'd love to get into that today. Um, more than that, she's also owned her own dance studio in Melbourne. So there's a lot that we can go into, and I'm really excited to share all of this. So hi, Sharon. How are you today? I am good. You are, I'm actually so excited about this because I don't, um, like, as you said earlier, I don't actually talk about my dancing as much online. I've been doing it for 20 years, and it's actually a very much a primary part of my life. But you see more about my day job online than you do about my dancing. And so I'm really excited about this. Thank you. Yeah, me too. And like, like I told you, I don't, I, I never thought that because your dancing is so present and I feel like you're a dancer and that's like what I thought is your main thing. So I was really surprised to find out about all the other amazing things that you do. And I was like, wow, how do you manage all of that in one, like under one hat? Yeah. So I, I do, um, I have a day job. I run my own coaching and consulting business, as you know, and I do I'm corporate coach as well as a leadership, personal leadership coach. And then I've always called it my night and my weekend job or my passion job, which is I am a professional dancer and artist. I have spent the last 10 years of my life traveling the world to dance, which I feel very privileged to do. Um, I judge competitions. I own a dance school in Melbourne, Australia. 
uh, for the last 13 years, which has seen, you know, thousands of people come through its doors and learn salsa and become competitors themselves and become artists themselves. And I am a mom of two kids. And, um, yeah, I'm very busy. I'm very tired. <laughs> I can only imagine. Oh, my God. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. So how did you start your artist's journey? How did you find the artist within you? I actually love this question because so many people ask me how I started salsa dancing. And I think to myself, well, that's actually quite a boring question, right? Um, finding out how people go from amateur dancer to artist, though, I think that's a really crucial question because it's a desire and a dream of so many dancers. So I guess I'll start with, I started salsa dancing as an adult. I think I'm a huge anomaly in the salsa industry. Most of the women in the salsa industry started ballet, ballroom, jazz. You know, they have a background in their dancing. I had no background. And I started dancing as an adult, as a 19 or 20-year-old. And my mom said, you know, do you want to come do a salsa class? And I was like, salsa. I guess. And then I started it and I fell in love with it to the point where my mom and dad were like, please don't do this salsa thing. And I was actually studying my first degree at the time. And what better time to become a salsa dancer or to find a passion for the arts than when you're at university and you have plenty of time on your hands, right? So I did two degrees whilst pursuing my passion for the craft. And towards the end of my two degrees, that was six years later, and I worked really hard. I traveled to learn um, from Australia. So that was a pretty big feat back in the early 2000s. I had to travel to New York, to Korea, to Europe, and I had to learn and learn and learn because there was absolutely no one in Australia at a level that could teach me. And I would come back to Asia and learn a lot. And on all those trips, what I really learned was a deep desire to, number one, do dancing at a very high level, even if I never meant to make it my primary job, because I'm a kind of person that if I'm in, I'm all in. If it, I'm yes, I'm a hell yes. It's not enough to be like, it's okay, it's a hobby. Like I, I don't know what it is inside me, but I'm not really hell yes about a lot of things in life. But when I am, I'm like a dog with a bone. It, it, I just have to get good at it. So the desire was never to become an artist. I always said, even from an early um, time in my, in my dancing, I wanted to be as good as an artist, but I didn't necessarily want to be an artist because I was doing these two degrees and I knew I had a future in a professional career, like a white collar career. And I never wanted to depend on my art for money. And that was a really big thing for me because I found so much enjoyment in dancing that I knew that I didn't want it to be something that I had to depend on for money, if that makes sense. So I did want to become a professional dancer, but it was never my dream to be an artist. And I think actually that was what helped me become an artist. Because I think when you want something too badly, oftentimes you can sabotage yourself in the process. Oftentimes when you want something too badly, you have blinders on as to what you need to do to get there. And you are very blocked because you don't know your gaps in order to get there because you can't be self-aware. Whereas I never really like chased that dream of being an artist. I sort of said, I want to be as good as an artist. And so instead of working on the, I don't know if you can call it fame in the salsa scene, but instead of working on being known, I worked on my craft. I worked on my discipline and my skills and my training, right? And so I started working for a dance school in Melbourne, not my dance school, another dance school. Um, and then I started attending events and then I started, you know, being asked to teach here and there. And I always knew I wanted to teach because imparting information is much more important to me than being an artist. And actually, I've always hated performing. I've always wanted to teach. I love imparting knowledge. So I was like, okay, 2007, I'd been dancing for seven years and I was like, I'm going to open a dance school. And I didn't know what I was doing. We started my dance school in an abandoned nightclub. It was like an old warehouse. 
And we met there every Tuesday and it was really good. And then one day we walked up about six months in, the warehouse had been shut, had been repossessed. There was a padlock on it and a chain. And we had no way to do class. So I had to find a dance school like 200 meters away. And we, back in those days, there was no social media, right? 2007, you're really relying, there was no smartphones. So you're relying on people to be at work or be at home checking their email. So when this is happening at five or six o'clock in the evening, you're like, how am I going to tell everyone that classes has moved? And so we, the, the dance studio we found was the first time we were in a proper dance studio, proper floors and you know, it was nice. And we put light sticks, you know, those glow sticks that glow in the dark. We went to the supermarket, bought some glow sticks, and we put them on the ground, the 200-meter walk to my studio, to the new studio. And that became our new home. And that's how I actually started a dance school. I didn't start a dance school because I was starting a dance school. I started a dance school because I wanted to teach on a Tuesday night. And then it became, we found a dance school. And then we subleased from this contemporary school for like a year, two years, I think. And then it was getting too big. Like I was there five nights a week. I had a day job. So I was working a corporate job by now. Um, every night at 5.15, I would leave my corporate job and run like literally three blocks to my dance studio and then teach till 10 o'clock at night. And then I, I started traveling. And here's the thing about becoming an artist. It, it happened very organically for me. People started asking me, would you like to teach at this event? Would you like to do a show? And then I started bringing teams to events. It's not because, it's not like now where you're as an artist, you're expected to bring a team to an event or you're asked to bring a team to an event. It was actually back then, bringing teams to an event was not a big deal or not a big thing. I happened to be one of the first in the region who was bringing teams to events. Only because in Australia, there was not much salsa and especially not no mambo on two, right? I think it was me and a couple of people in Sydney that was teaching it. So... For me to bring teams to these events, it was because I wanted to educate my students. Now, in the process of bringing teams to events, event organizers were like, oh, we like this girl. She's bringing teams. She's bringing people who are buying tickets, right? So then, and then they realized I was also a really good teacher. And if I came to an event one time, they would see how well I social danced, how good I was at teaching. They liked my shows. And so they started bringing me anyway, you know? And so it just became a snowball effect of I did this thing that event organizers liked. I was bringing teams. And then they really liked how entertaining my shows were. And they really liked the experience of having me at their event. And I think one of the first rules of business is make yourself indispensable, right? Make yourself someone that people can't see without. I don't know if I did this. I didn't, I definitely didn't do this strategically, but definitely I was the kind of person who would, as an artist, I would social dance till four o'clock in the morning with anyone who asked me, right? I would be there from the first show to the last show, cheering for everyone. I would bring the energy to the parties. I would be at the after parties. I would bring a really solid workshop and sooner or later people look at you and go, we don't want to, we want her energy there. We want her vibe there. Right. I was always well presented. You know, I always have my makeup on, nice outfit. You know, if you're at the bar, we're at the bar drinking. I'll do it. You know, if we're eating, we're going to eat. I'll do it. And I think at some stage you get become known as someone who is a good artist to have a rock solid artist. Yeah. They know what to expect. Yeah. No one was scared that I would sleep through the shows or not turn up for my show or not come for tech rehearsal or be late for my workshop, which was going on a lot and in fact still happens, right? So I think what happens is that I just, I happen to have worked very hard for many years and then I happen to do something that event organizers liked and then I happen to become someone that they really wanted at their events. And those three things came together and that was my artist journey. And then before long, I was traveling a lot and I would say I'm not, you know, I'm not, Adolfo and Tanya. I'm not Terry and Cecile. 
I'm not being asked to go to 50 events a year, but that was never my aim. I have a day job, right? So I always had a rule that I wanted to have about one event every five or six weeks. And that would be more than enough for me. When it was, when I was in my prime, like maybe six or seven years ago, before I had children, it was one event a month. And that was great. Now that I have kids, it became more like once every six weeks. And having say 10 events a year to go to is perfect for me. And you know what was beautiful about that is that because I was so clear, it gave me the opportunity to choose the events I wanted to go to. So I was only going to really good events, you know, and that's really amazing as well as an artist to be able to pick and choose and not be a slave to an event. So how did I become an artist? I worked bloody hard. I made myself good in everything. So even though I hate performing, I made myself good at performing. I hate competing. I made myself good at competing. I love judging, so I was good at that naturally. I love teaching. I was good at that naturally. I love social dancing. But even though I didn't necessarily love being up till six in the morning every night, I did it because it was, I saw it as my job. And so what I did was I made myself a very all-rounded artist. And so I may not be one of the best artists in the world, but in the region, I'm definitely one of the artists that is sought after just because of who I am in addition to my talent, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's about the discipline. It's about the mentality and just, yeah, giving people the sense of, okay, if we have her, we know what to expect. We know we can expect punctuality. We know we can rely on her and we know that we get quality. And I think that's something that, you don't get so much nowadays because people are not really willing to put in the work, the time, the effort anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I do think that growing up without social media, growing up in salsa, not growing up, but growing up without social media in my dance journey was actually really useful because it made you really hungry. You know, so I can tell you in 2005 and six, there was maybe in Australia, there was probably about 20 really good female salsa dancers. And I was nowhere near the top of that list. Right. I was like maybe number eight or nine in that list, I would say. Out of those 20, only about four of us are still around now and smashing it, like smashing it hard. You know why? Because we continued to work when it got hard and we didn't have social media to compare ourselves to anyone, so we invented our own styles and we supported each other. We had a real community spirit. These women are my friends right now. Uh, we've always been friends. We've never, ever been like, mean to each other or anything like that. And we're the ones who have survived. And you can find, you can see that, A, the ones who haven't survived the artist industry are the ones that couldn't hack the long-term longevity of that, that hard work, that discipline, that professionalism, that, that you know what, it's hard work, right? It's really hard on your body. It's exhausting. That coming back from injuries, um, having children, on a woman, the dance scene is particularly cruel. But the second part of it is that what I'm seeing is that the up-and-coming artists for the last eight years, that top four or five women in Australia has stayed kind of the same, right? So, and we're in our 30s, like late 30s. It shouldn't be like that. There should be 25, 28, 30-year-olds really hungry. And they are hungry. Don't get me wrong. It's just we've been doing it for so much longer that our stamina is better, our discipline is better, our style is better because we don't have social media telling us how to look as women. You know, we look all different. Our choreography skills are better because we've done like a thousand choreographies. You know, it, it just so happens that we have done the work and we're continuing to do the work. That makes a lot of sense. And when you talk about women in um, the dance industry and in the salsa industry, is it the same for both women and men or are there big differences? Oh my goodness, this is a podcast and no one can see my face right now, but <laughs> I'm, I'm grimacing at the thought that it's the same for men and women. Let me tell you, you know, things that have happened to me in the last 20 years that, that make it not the same for men and women, right? 
In dancing, there are so many more women than men already. So if you're a man who can do like intermediate to advanced steps and you're a reasonably nice guy and you look reasonably nice, you're going to be treated like a god. Okay? You're going to be treated like the best thing since sliced bread. And I know many men will disagree with that, but there is proof. I mean, I think they come that great as dancers. Their dance partner makes them look incredible, but they get worshipped because they're rare in themselves. For a woman, but right, if a man discards a woman's dance partner, there are 10 women waiting in the sidelines who can put their leg up to their ear and point their feet and do flips and tricks and are younger and more willing and they can bend their back backwards. There is always a really talented dancer looking to fill your place as a woman. And women are very driven, right? I think women work very, very hard because we start dancing because we want to dance. I always say this, a lot of the time, the men who start dancing as adults, they start because they wanted a social outlet or they've always wanted to learn to move to music. Or something. But women, when we start dancing, we want to dance. You know, like we are very hungry for it. So, and this is a gross generalization, but I will say mm-hmm. that as a woman, I was told I should never learn to lead because it would kill my follow. And I've somehow managed to become a very proficient lead and still a very good follow, you know, somehow. But I've never seen a man be told. I've never seen a man say, don't learn to follow because it'll ruin your lead, right? I very seldom see a dance partnership. I cannot think of actually any where the woman does all the talking in the class. Like when you're in a dance partnership, you're teaching class with a male and a female dance partner. I've never seen something where the woman does all the talking. And yet I see this with men 90% of the time. And a lot of the time, if you take a private lesson from these people, a woman is the better teacher, okay? I have never seen a man who has left dancing to look after his children. I have never seen a man get told that he doesn't have the right body shape to be on stage. And there are some men who definitely could do with fitness health checks, right, in the scene. But I don't see them get told the way women get told. I have never seen a man like be told you have to um, have perfect technique in order to be an artist, like perfect, like pointed toes and acrobatics and flexible spines and good rumba and good body movement. And like, you know, never seen a man get told that, but women get told that all the time, right? So how different is the scene for men versus women? Incredibly different. But what I found is that I never had one dance partner, never, ever. And I never wanted one dance partner. I always had a harem of dance partners. And this made people very uncomfortable. I see men change dance partners like they change their socks, right? And I never had a dance partner. And this made a lot of people very uncomfortable. Like event organizers would be like, mm, so we don't know if we want to hire you because you don't have a dance partner. We don't know if you can teach a workshop that's partner work because you don't have a dance partner. We don't know if you're going to put on a good show with a female dance partner. And this got tiring really fast because, because I think when a man does a solo, and you're going to see this a lot just in salsa in general, right? When a man does a solo, it's seen as something incredible and amazing. And when a woman does a solo, it has to be pretty and gorgeous and sexy and fun, but it's not seen as strong. It's seen as an athletic display of femininity. I'm going to say that again. It's seen as an athletic display of femininity. And so how many, like, 
How many women in the world of the female artists in the world do you see that literally don't have a dance partner? Don't care for it, don't want it, built their whole career in being a soloist. Not many. But you can name like any male world champion and they're like in the solo category and they're a lot of the times they're soloists. So is the dance industry a different place for women and men? Undoubtedly, without a doubt, right? I have seen women lose jobs and lose work because they had the audacity to break up with their dance partner. Okay. But men not lose work even though they were too drunk to turn for their class or too drunk to turn for tech rehearsal or they slept through the shows or they decided they didn't want to social dance all night or they've done something even really bad to women, right, in the scene and they still don't lose work. But if a woman makes a mistake, a small mistake, they lose work. If a woman goes off and has a baby, they lose work. If a woman decides that they need to, you know, um, rest because they're sick, a lot of the times there's a bit of a judgment there, like, oh, is she really sick? You know, I think that there's certainly a double standard in the industry, and partly because men are scarce yeah. and are rare compared to women, but also partly because we have some ancient philosophies, you know, in the, in the industry. So I think I've worked really hard in my career to really overturn that if I can where I can, if I can. And that's why I refuse to have a dance partner. I've had dance partners, many, many dance partners, but I've never had one dance partner. For, and I've never had a dance partner longer than a year and a half. Wow. Because, because I will not let my reputation be hinging on someone else's career. That's, that's really interesting to hear. So what can um, women do to be successful in the... You know, um, this is possibly not going to be, it's not going to sound like a very feminist viewpoint, but I am a firm, staunch feminist. But it's, I'm going to say something that's going to make it sound like I'm bowing to the system. But right now, we are in 2020, and the system is what it is. It's much better for women now. Oh, a million times better than even where we were 10 years ago, or even five years ago. But it still has room to grow. But the system is what the system is. And you can't fight it. Well, you can fight it, but if you want to get work, then you have to actually do the things, which means, so for myself, I knew I always hold, had to hold myself to a much higher standard than women. I just did. You know, I couldn't do the things that they did. I couldn't just decide to sleep in um, and be hungover. I couldn't be a grumpy or an asshole. I couldn't, um, you know, I knew, I knew that for me, as a woman traveling solo to different parts of the world, there's a real risk in me, like, picking a fight with someone who's treating me badly, right? So if an event organizer was being not very nice to me, I couldn't just flare up at them because there's a real danger and a real risk in being a woman who's traveling solo in a different part of the world, getting angry with a man, right? And so I, I would play that game. I would, you know, speak diplomatically, call in supporters to support my, my thing, and then have the conversation later when everyone's diffused. If you want to be a female artist, the market is so saturated, so saturated, even for someone like me. And so you really have to figure out what it is you can bring to the table that, number one, every other female artist can bring. So that might be technique, show skills, teaching skills, um, performance skills, um, niceness, diplomacy, mark, good marketing for yourself and good branding, good costumes, good um, empathy, all of those things most of the people who want to be artists have already. 
And you have to be able to bring those at a minimum. And then you have to think, what can I do that's extra? What can I do that is so different to every other female artist in the scene? Because that's what brings you the cut above, right? So for me, it became my shows that were really um, decidedly non-feminine sometimes. You know, they were just really sassy, really funky, really strong woman vibe, really, really, I don't care what you think of me. I'm going to do this show and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to look like any other, other person you've ever seen. It was a desire to have a completely different style. For me, it was uh, that I social danced all night, every night. A lot of people don't do this. A lot of artists don't do this in general, right? Um, so when you bring that, people start to really appreciate you bringing your skills into the social dance floor so they can have a chance to dance with you, right? I'm not saying I'm the best social dancer in the world. I'm saying I'm on the dance floor. I'm there. But that's how you get better. <laughs> that's right. But also I'm present, right? There's, this is the thing. You, you might have 10 people in the world who are much better social dancers than me, but they're not on the dance floor. So how do you know? Right? So, um, so I think that I, I coach a lot of upcoming female artists and they always ask me the same thing. How, 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 Sharon, how? And I always say, you know what? Like you're in a sea of people, of stars, okay? Now what does a star have? Five points. They're yellow, they're golden, they glow in the dark. They are beautiful. Now you have to be at least as good as all those stars already. And then you've got to figure out what makes you a shooting star, right? So that people actually notice you. And so it's not enough be good at all the things it's not enough to collect championships under your belt it's not enough to be a great show show person it's not enough to be great at and tricks it's not enough to be a great teacher it's not enough to be a great performer like those things are not enough they are good and they are the essentials and then you got to think how do i put myself a cut above everyone else and then the third part of that is you're going to be so good at marketing and branding yourself like you said to me, you couldn't find much information about my dancing on the internet. And that is a real travesty. Oh, I've got to fix that. But this is not my primary job. Like, honestly, I've done what I wanted to in the dance industry, right? But in this day and age when everyone is on social media, and I say this all the time in my business coaching for artists, if you don't want to do the branding and the marketing thing, then you possibly don't want to be a dancer. That's just it. If you're not putting your work out there, you're not going to get work. If you're not putting your art out there, people can't appreciate you. If you're not talking about what you stand for and what you represent, ethics, values, purpose, mission, vision, then people can't get a sense of why your art exists, right? So there's three parts to that. How do you want to become a female artist? And then even then I can't guarantee you'll become a female artist because I can't control how hard other people are working to do all those things as well. So if you ask me how, that's the how, that's the formula, three things. Right. Be as good as everyone else. Find a thing that differentiates you and makes you incredibly special and non-dispensable. And the third thing is be willing to market and brand that like a mofo, like sell your soul to market and brand yourself and put yourself out there. And I'll tell you someone who's doing that really well, right? Brenda Liu from Singapore. She is doing the perfect trifecta of things and it is showing. She's getting results. I mean, where in the world did you think a young female soloist dancer from Asia could become known as one of the world's top salsa artists. Wow. <laughs> right? She's doing that perfectly. She's, she does everything incredibly well, everything in the gamut, from performing to teaching to teams to, you know, everything. Plus, she's found her special style, which makes her so unique. You can tell it's Brenda from a mile away. And she's stuck to that style and held to that style. She's really admirable, Right. And she's gotten where she is purely because she's put in the work on all those three pillars. And she continues to every day. She doesn't stop. 
So that's a case study. If anyone wants to go be a female artist, go watch Brenda. That reminds me of, I feel like, is one of the biggest hurdles that we're not putting our art out there or we're not sharing our values and all of that because we're so afraid of what people think of us. So how do we get over that hurdle? Because I feel like artists are not. It's just something that us humans really struggle with. I think that, um, so I'm going to say this in two parts, actually, if I can. So the first thing is to remember that every time you put yourself out there as a human being, as a performer, as a public speaker, as a marketer, as a business owner, we have to remember that it's fleeting, right? People don't remember what you put out there. You know, if you put out the fact that you like tea with honey and milk, a hundred people might read it and then tomorrow they don't care. Like they've got their own life to worry about. So I would say that I would treat putting yourself out there like getting on stage for a show. And I'll tell you this as someone who hated performing. Ooh, I hated performing so much. For I'm talking for a good 14 years. I hated performing. And what I saw it as was a necessary evil as part of my work. So if I don't get up on stage, no one's going to know that I can actually dance. Right? So I have to do the shows even though I don't like it. Secondly, If I get up on that stage, it's three minutes of my life. Like, am I going to die in three minutes of my life putting myself on stage and I hate it? No. Like, reasonably, the worst that can happen is I fall down, right? And then people have had much worse things happen to them. So let's put some things in perspective here. A lot of the times with fear, the danger might be real, but the fear is a choice, right? And, And oftentimes the danger isn't even real. We're just deciding to feel scared because it's easier to be scared than to just do this thing. And so I come as someone, as you've seen my style, it's very unique. It's very, very unique. And I copped a lot of flack for my style early days. Right? I didn't look feminine enough. I didn't have good arm styling. Um, why do you want to dance like a man? Why do you want to dance in such a way that it's not competition style, you know, straight lines, pointed feet? And I always went back to my mentors and my teachers. Frankie Martinez was one of my original mentors. And he always said to me, Do you think the people who invented salsa danced in high heels with pointed toes? No, that's a construct. That's a construct that's placed on competition salsa. But you certainly don't have to do it if that's not what you want to do. Yeah, I, I, I got to dance a lot with Super Mario from an early age in my dancing because my dance teacher knew him and introduced me to him early. And he was always so encouraging. He was like, who cares if you don't like the stage stuff? I never perform. Just focus on your social dancing and get so good on the social floor that every man in the world wants to dance with you. And who cares what people think? Because every man in the world knows how you feel to dance with. So they want to dance with you, right? Um, I recognized early on when people would criticize me for my lack of technique, technique being pointed feet, spotting when spinning, you know, ballet lines, if you will. I would turn around and say, how can I be expected to have those things? I didn't dance since I was four, you know? So I'm willing to work on that. But you can't argue that my... Salsa technique is better than a whole lot of those people who can do the ballet and the ballroom stuff, right? So I worked so hard because I felt I had something to prove as well. If you want to call yourself an artist, this is something I had to grapple with and come to terms with very early. If I dare to call myself an artist, then my job is to produce art. And art is not always beautiful. And art is not always perfect. And art is not meant to sit there like a pretty painting where you sit there and you're like, oh, it's so pretty. It makes my living room nice. Art is meant to provoke. Art is meant to bring us to social, higher social awareness. Art is political. Art is 
is always been a form of rebellion. Art is something we create because it fills our soul, not because we're making it for an audience, right? Art is not something that we make to sell necessarily. We can sell it, but we should make it because it comes from a place of creation and creating something unique. So if you want to call yourself an artist, then you have to make that art come from a place of not worrying about what people think. If that may, you know, it has to be pure. It has to be true. And the moment we start creating art that we think people will like, we are inauthentic. And consumers are very smart. Consumers are very smart in 2020. They have the world at their fingertips in terms of information. They can sniff out inauthenticity like a dog sniffs out drugs at the airport, right? And so when you do things that are absolutely true from you to you, a really radiant light comes out of you. And that's very attractive. And as an artist, your job is actually to help other people find the light within themselves. Your art should provoke people to find something within themselves. It should make people feel. It should make people emote. And so if your art doesn't do those things, then I can understand why you're scared to put it out there. But maybe then we have to work harder on our art. Maybe the problem is not we're scared to put ourselves out there and scared of what people think. Maybe we're just scared to create powerful art. That was, that is just the biggest gold nugget ever. Oh my God, I'm tearing up. Like that just spoke so truly to my heart. Because I feel like everything that Sharon has said, is just really well reflected. And she comes from a place of experience and understanding. And that, yeah, what if we are afraid of creating meaningful art? Because it just makes us vulnerable. It makes us more vulnerable to really show ourselves. And so I'm really grateful to have had this first part of a two-part interview with Sharon. And I'm just so grateful for all the nuggets that we've gotten so far. I'm going to stop the interview here. And I'll let you know that the second part of this interview is going to come out on Friday. Now, on Friday, the continuation will be more about teaching because Sharon is an amazing teacher. As I said in the beginning, I've experienced her before and she has so much teaching experience that I interviewed her about what it means to be a great teacher. And I feel like a lot of artists are teachers as well because it's just one of the ways to financially succeed in the arts, but also it's a, it's a way to pass on what we know and Teaching is just so fulfilling in the sense that if you can teach someone else to think creatively, to think outside the box, to understand the technique of something, then that is really meaningful. So that is what I'm going to look at with Sharon and what people and artists especially can do as teachers. And I'm really excited to be sharing that with you in a few days. So stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, and then you'll get a notification when the next episode comes out if you enjoyed today. Also, if you have any salsa dancers as friends or any dancers or female artists, then you're very welcome to share this episode with them. I just feel like it contributed to my life as an artist and dancer so much that I can only imagine that it would contribute to other people as well. And if you want to let me know what you think, I just started an Instagram account for this podcast. It's called From Artists. For artists, you're welcome to follow and just message me there. I hope you have a wonderful day. From artists.